and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. As God designed men and warriors, we need to know how the idea that gender is a social construct is corrupting the very children singing this weekend and next about Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. If we do nothing, many will reject God's gender design and bring enormous pain into their lives. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a striking example of all that God designed a woman to be. We need the daughters of Christ to see that. This episode makes some suggestions about defeating transgender ideology in the public arena of ideas and then takes a closer look at Mary, a paragon of godly womanhood that the daughters of our churches need to admire. Thanks for joining us today for the final episode of Season 2, Episode number 61 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. God has created us to fight to spread Christ's kingdom of truth over earth at this cultural moment. The battle to protect our wives, kids, and others is fought in the world of ideas. The weapons of our warfare have divine power, writes Paul, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Notice that four words in this description of battle have to do with thinking correctly. Arguments, opinion, knowledge, and thought. Satan, the father of lies, follows a simple strategy, darkening human understanding. However, God, the author of truth, is the designer of mathematics and logic and an orderly world. He is the divine logos, says John. This term from which we get the word logic represented the organizing principle of the universe in Greek philosophy. We need to be certain that the rising generation understands that anti-biblical views are always going to fail logically but they may need help in seeing this flawed logic. Here are some examples of flawed thinking about gender identity. First, what our kids are hearing. Gender is a social construct. You must ask a person for his gender identity because gender identity and biological sex, called sex assigned at birth, are unrelated, meaning your body has nothing to do with your gender. We're told that some people are born into the wrong body. What is a logical response? The desire to support a friend, especially one who is ridiculed for being T, is both understandable and Christ-like. Christians ought to be known for befriending transgender people because they have inestimable worth as those made in God's image. Furthermore, usually we win others more to a biblical view by loving them well than by persuading them of their faulty thinking, though both are necessary. But real love is never separated from truth. So here is a response to transgenderism. First, transgender ideology attempts to base reality on the subjective feelings a person has instead of biologic and genetic reality. Feelings don't determine reality anywhere else in life. We don't allow our feelings to determine our height, 
our weight, our eye color, our skin color, or shoe size. These are objectively determined for us at birth. Even if we are adopted, we can't change the DNA that shapes our eye color, height, weight, and shoe size. That is reality. That reality doesn't change according to how we feel about it. Feelings don't determine gender either. Our DNA determines our gender. Every single one of a girl's 37.2 trillion cells is marked with XX chromosomes. She is a girl. To feel and think otherwise is to live a delusion. A person in a girl's body who thinks she is a boy is deluded. This disconnect from reality is called psychosis. Here is the Mayo Clinic definition of psychosis, a mental disorder characterized by a disconnection from reality. If my three-year-old child sees a cartoon with people flying and goes to the top of the steps planning to dive down the steps because she can fly, even an eight-year-old son knows he needs to stop her because she is deluded about reality. It may hurt her feelings to tell her she can't fly, but that is reality. To allow her to believe a delusion and dive down the steps is cruel. Thin people who feel overweight, when in reality they are not, are called anorexic. They are deluded. Correct medical treatment is not to affirm their delusion. It's cruel to affirm their identity as too fat and watch them starve. Such people need professional help. The way to be kind is to help them see themselves as they actually are. Here is something else that our kids are hearing. There are more than two genders. The idea that there are two genders is old-fashioned and proven wrong by the fact that some people are born intersex. What is a logical response to this argument? It's true that rarely some reproductive systems don't develop properly along male or female lines. This condition is a disorder of sexual development not a new gender. Some people are born without limbs. Some are born blind. Some are born with extra chromosomes. Others with missing chromosomes. Disorders of sex organ development are not evidence of a new sex category any more than disorders of the cardiac or respiratory system are evidence of a new kind of heart or lung. Misshaped genitalia is not a new sex category. The intersex condition is a disorder of sexual development, not a new gender. Every part of our body risks developing imperfectly. Heart, lungs, appendages, including our reproductive system. Sexual deformities are just that. They create no new chromosomes, sex hormones, or genitalia. Misshaped organ disorders do not replace the normal reproductive process that requires male and female. They are simply evidence that sometimes our bodies don't develop or function as designed. Now, the intersex condition is real, and like every physical variation from the ideal, those who face this condition are worthy of all dignity as human beings. But a disorder of sex organ development does not produce in any way a third gender. 
Here is the high cost of cowardly silence about gender identity. That sounds severe, but I want to call it what it is. Here's some historic background. Gender dysphoria, formerly known as gender identity disorder, has long been a recognizable mental disorder. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders, published by the American Psychiatric Association in the year 2000, it is characterized by a severe and persistent discomfort in one's biological sex. It typically begins in early childhood, ages 2 through 4, although it may grow more severe in adolescence. 70% of childhood gender dysphoria resolves by itself. Historically, it has afflicted only 0.0001 of the population, almost exclusively boys. In fact, before 2012, there was no scientific literature on girls ages 11 to 21 having gender identity dysphoria. Wall Street Journal writer Abigail Schreier, who makes no claim to being a Christian, conducted extensive research on the current transgender craze among teen girls. She found that this transgender craze is different from past forms of gender dysphoria. She writes, The phenomenon sweeping teenage girls is different. It originates not in traditional gender dysphoria, but in videos found on the Internet. It represents mimicry inspired by Internet gurus, a pledge taken with girlfriends, hands and breath held, eyes squeezed shut. For these girls, trans identification offers freedom from anxiety's relentless pursuit. It satisfies the deepest need for acceptance, the thrill of transgression, the seductive lilt of belonging. The American family finds itself set in a society that increasingly regards parents as obstacles, bigots, and dupes. We cheer as teenage girls with no history of dysphoria steep themselves in radical gender ideology taught in school or found on the Internet. Peers and therapists and teachers and Internet heroes egg these girls on. But here, the cost of so much youthful indiscretion is not a piercing or a tattoo. The cost is so much higher. This epidemic of gender dysphoria is not only leading to irreversible top surgery and infertility, the internal psychological fracturing that comes from trying to split apart self-identity from one's physical body leads 41% of those who identify as transgender to commit suicide compared to about 1.2% in the overall population. Transgender ideology's attempts to blame this astronomical suicide rate on the lack of acceptance of transgenderism as normal are not credible in the world of statistics. More importantly, blaming others for not further enabling transgender delusion does not change the fact that 41% of those who buy into this delusion end up committing suicide. We cannot allow the daughters of our families, churches, and nation to travel down this path. Behind much of today's gender confusion is the loss of the glory of God's design of male and female differently, having strengths the other gender doesn't, so that man and woman need each other to complete our assignment as God's image bearers. In the Old Testament and New Testament, the callings to masculinity and femininity are 
different. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is an awesome picture of femininity that we need to inspire the rising generation of girls to aspire to. So let's take a deep look at Mary, the portrait of beautiful femininity as it was designed to be. The Apostle Peter writes, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a meek and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Here, four characteristics of inner feminine beauty are laid out, and each one is visibly lived out in Mary, the mother of Jesus. First, meekness. The Greek word proutes is used to describe the strength of a spirited horse, which yields to the control of its rider. This inner heart attitude of surrender to the Lord makes a woman beautiful, says Peter. And we see this heart in Mary, in spades. We see it in her spontaneous song called the Magnificat when Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, greets her. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he is mighty who has done great things for me. This heart attitude of surrender to the Lord's will is apparent in her immediate response to Gabriel's words. I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Be it unto me according to your word. Michael Card comments, Of all that she does not know, one thing seems perfectly clear to her. It is a perspective that will help her navigate the deep waters into which the small vessel of her life is about to go. It will be the source of her disturbingly clear obedience. She perfectly articulates this fundamental reality with her first response to the angel's troubling news. I am the Lord's slave. Different translations soften the language. Some render the word doule, the feminine form of doulos, servant. Others use the even softer handmaiden. But Mary is affirming that she is the slave of the Lord. She is surrendering her rights, her hopes, and dreams, and her body absolutely to him. Mary seems to know that she is owned by another. Next, beautiful, godly womanhood displays a quiet spirit. Back in 1 Peter 3, the Greek word Peter used for quiet was hesukoyas, which indicates tranquility arising from within, causing no disturbance to others. Having a quiet spirit means being at rest inside. Mary does ask Gabriel how she could be the Messiah's mother since she was a virgin, a simple inquiry that Gabriel seems happy to answer. Unlike Zechariah, the father of John, Mary does not doubt Gabriel's words, but quietly trusts God to work out the details of her life. Her confidence in God to work out everything for her ultimate good is the key to her contentment. 
Her trust in God's goodness makes her content with the circumstances over which she has no control. Mary's quiet confidence that God's words and promises are trustworthy comes out in the closing words of the Magnificat. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God remembers. That is, he keeps his promises. He is utterly trustworthy. And that confidence in the heart of a woman makes her beautiful. Next, beautiful godly womanhood is displayed by purity. Peter commands Christian women to be pure. Mary and Joseph, though engaged, were virgins. In a world that will scorn the daughters of our church for saving sex for marriage, we need to protect their hearts from the lies of Satan and the culture. As we guide our adolescents into an accurate understanding of sex, we need to help them see some things. Here are a few of those things. First, that sex is exhilarating, heart-pounding, fun, and enormously pleasurable. Second, that in the context where God places sex between a married man and woman, God urges them to drink often and deeply of sexual pleasure. See Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. Third, that their instinctive feeling of discomfort when they are naked in the locker room or doctor's office tells them something. It causes them, and the medical staff hopefully, to quickly cover their private parts. We need to help our sons and daughters realize that this God-given instinct to quickly cover up our nakedness is intended by God to protect us. It reminds us of the moral law written on our hearts that naked vulnerability is to be saved for marriage. Fourth, that when a human does expose his nakedness, especially his private parts, to another, that exposed human is vulnerable to enormous psychological damage if that nakedness is not valued, cherished, and loved. If, after the exposure, he does not feel loved unconditionally, the internal rejection is psychologically traumatic. That is part of the reason why rape is so emotionally devastating. It is the most profound of all violations of one's personhood. Fifth, that God protects the inner recesses of our private souls and bodies from being irrevocably injured by the rejection of another human by requiring that I only reveal that nakedness to one who has vowed before God, the state, the church, my family, and my friends that we will both unconditionally love each other for life entering the covenant of marriage. Sixth, we need to help our teens understand that having sex with one who is not committed lifelong to unconditionally loving you, but moves on, is like two pieces of paper glued together and trying to tear those papers apart again. Their soul gets torn, but we might not even realize the damage to our soul that has been done. Seventh, we need to help them see that the biblical view of sex might explain why the intimacy of sexual union is so emotionally, physically, and spiritually powerful, because God designed sexual union not only to be the richest of blessings for humans to enjoy, but as a type, the explosive pleasure of which points to the immense pleasure that will one day be ours in our spiritual union with Christ, our bridegroom. Finally, that it is Christianity's high view of sex as precious, the ultimate expression of vulnerability and of giving one's whole self to another that lies behind its teaching that it be saved for marriage. 
the high biblical worldview of sex makes so much sense. Gloriously, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was sexually pure. Such purity was not because she never had sex, as some in the Roman Catholic Church believe. It is because she didn't have sex until marriage. Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. The fourth expression of beautiful womanhood, says Peter, is reverence, fearing the Lord and not man. Peter's command to Christian women is to disregard what anyone thought of them but God. Peter commends a reverence. The Greek word here is phobia. In context, it refers to the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man concerning fashion. Christian women don't pursue beauty based upon the culture's latest fads, says Peter. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Archaeologists have found numerous portraits and sculptures from the first century in the Roman area showing elaborate braiding of women's hair and the wearing of ostentatious jewelry. Peter is not saying to women, look frumpy and wear outdated clothes for Jesus, but that the one they should most want to look beautiful for is their Lord. Peter continues, rather, your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty, which is of great worth in God's sight. When we look at Mary's Magnificat, we see her lifting up those who fear the Lord rather than fearing man. She exalts the upside down values of God's kingdom people in contrast to the wrong values of the fallen world. She says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I believe that only heaven will reveal the true beauty of Mary's determination to fear God rather than men. When she allowed God to make her pregnant without being married, the price she paid in her legalistic Jewish small-town community must have been staggering. As soon as she began to show, no doubt the tongues must have started wagging. That merry girl seems really pious, but if you ask me, she and Joseph have been messing around. How many jokes would have been cracked about Mary and Joseph's explanation for the pregnancy? Into the only home she knew and only extended family she had, she brought enormous shame in a town where everyone would know about her out-of-wedlock pregnancy. It's hard to imagine one suffering the rejection of her community any more severely. The town elders were so moralistic and committed to their Jewish ways that when Jesus came back to Nazareth 30 years later and confronted them with their racist hostility toward unclean Gentiles, they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Mary and Joseph would have appeared unrepentant over their fornication. Might they have been thrown out of the synagogue? Well, Mary chose to fear God and not men. And we need to help our daughters realize that true beauty in God's eyes and even in human eyes is the inner confidence of a woman who is too strong to yield to peer pressure, but instead says true through the loyalties of her heart. What might happen at the dinner table during the Christmas holidays if you asked, 
How do you think Mary is a good example of womanhood for young girls today to follow? Well, our time is gone, but I want to recommend an earlier podcast entitled Leadership Lessons from Jesus' Dad, Season 2, Episode 6. That's December 12, 2020, where I examine seven characteristics of Joseph as a godly father. That's Season number 2, Episode number 6 from 12-12-20. Do have a Merry Christmas, and in 2022, may we all come to know Jesus more deeply love him with greater loyalty, and fight for his honor with greater passion. To summarize this episode, as we complete season two of Mission Focus Men for Christ, the challenge that we face as men is to rise up and stand for truth in today's culture concerning gender identity. One's gender is not defined by one's feelings any more than one's shoe size, height, or eye color is determined by one's feelings. It's determined by what the physical world tells her is real. Like shoe size, eye color, and height, it is determined by her genes and discovered at birth, not assigned. Transgenderism is like anorexia, a psychosis, a disconnect from reality. A five foot seven girl who weighs 95 pounds but thinks she is fat is not fat, and a girl who thinks she is a boy is not a boy. To enable their delusion is cruel. Our daughters need role models, and there is none whose example better leads our rising daughters to a lifetime of fulfillment more than that of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary fulfills Peter's description of godly womanhood. She showed the strength under control of meekness, viewing herself as belonging to God. She exhibited a quiet spirit, trusting what Gabriel said, and exalting her Lord as a promise-keeping God in her song of praise called the Magnificat. She demonstrated sexual purity in a world where sexual desire in engaged couples was just as strong as it is today. But the most beautiful part of her heart may have been the way she willingly chose to do what pleased God, even though it meant facing rejection and ridicule by so many of her family and friends. Thanks for listening today. Next week's message is entitled, How Not to Waste Your Life in 2022. I hope you'll be able to join us.